Christ here is talking to uh, his disciples, and they had been kind of jockeying for position as far as who would be the greatest. I mean, just way off track. And he says that's not how it works in the Christian economy. In the Christian economy, those who really are the greatest are those who humble themselves, those who serve. That is what makes us ministers. I guess the question arises, how can we minister, or how can we best minister to others? How can we minister and make it count eternally? What is the most important ministry that we can do? The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. Let's take our Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. The series we're in is entitled, Now You're Ministering. What do we mean by that? When we say, now you're talking. Now you're talking, you know, or now you're logging. My mother used to say that one. Never really didn't know what she meant by that. Or now you're making sense, or now you're on track. Well, when we say, now you're ministering, it means, okay, you're really getting down to what ministering is all about. That is a biblical word, and we find it here in this passage, Mark chapter 10. We pick it up in verse 42. It says, But Jesus called them to him, that is, his disciples, and saith unto them, You know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister." And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now you're ministering. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we come before thee. We ask you to help us to listen. We pray that you'd enable us to get down the truths we'll be looking at today and how I'm praying now that you would Make us ministers, especially in this area of outreach. Father, give us a passion, a heart, and a love for the lost. And I just pray that we would uh, speak the things which we have seen and heard, and as a result, see them hear the truth and be accountable for it. We pray now these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ here is talking to uh, his disciples, and they had been kind of jockeying for position as far as who would be the greatest. I mean, just way off track. And he says, that's not how it works in the Christian economy. In the Christian economy, those who really are the greatest are those who humble themselves, those who serve, and those who minister. And he uses the word there, minister. It's the, the Greek word, di ahan ekko. I'm no Greek scholar. But it simply means not to labor for self or to seek others to labor for us, but to labor for others. That is what makes us ministers. Growing up for, I guess, over 20 years, I heard the, the word minister. And to me, it was, you know, a guy with a special collar on and special garments and robes and things along those lines. I really didn't understand that anyone can minister and anyone can be a minister. I never really ministered for those 20 years, not biblically anyway or scripturally anyway. But 
having gotten saved now and reading what Christ tells us to do here, I guess the question arises, how can we minister or how can we best minister to others? Now, you could make somebody a meal and bring it over and, and they would eat and you would have ministered to them and, and met a need that would last for about four or five hours until they needed their next meal. Or you could minister to somebody by reaching in your pocket and giving them money or giving donations to charity and you would have ministered but that, that ministry maybe would uh, at best make somebody comfortable for several days or maybe a few weeks. But how can we minister and make it count eternally? What is the most important ministry that we can do? Well, turn if you would to Mark chapter 16, just a few pages forward. And we find out that Christ gives us some parting instructions here before he goes on to heaven. And he tells us what to do. We call it the Great Commission. Mark 16, 15, and he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That means everybody. Preach the gospel everywhere to everyone. Now, this is a commandment. This is what we call a commission. And because of who said it, it makes it really important. You know, my daughter Gracie could go to my daughter Annie and say, Clean your room. And Annie would go, Says who? And it wouldn't mean anything if Gracie tells you to do it. If Gracie says, Dad said so. <laughs> that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? You parents know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, who said so here? Somebody told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Says who? Says the Lord Jesus Christ. That gives it all the authority in the world. In fact, we find the counterpart of this verse in Matthew 28, where Christ prefaces it beforehand by saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And then he gives the Great Commission. That's authority. That's who says. Our Lord Jesus Christ has told us what he wants us to do. And his last commandment really should be our first priority. The Great Commission. Now that commission was given to the church. And I'm not talking about some universal, invisible, kind of a uh, mystical church, because there really isn't such an, a thing at all. Not biblically. The church is a local ecclesia, a called-out assembly of believers. It's, it's churches like this who have the doctrine, who have the faith, who have even the history. And Christ gives that commission to churches like this, New Testament Baptist churches. Now, as members of a local church, uh, we can put our thumbs under our suspenders. We can have a little swagger as we walk about saying, we have the great commission. It was given to us. Well, yeah, but with that privilege comes responsibility. Forget the swagger. Uh, it's an awesome responsibility for us now to reach our generation, for you to reach those people in your circle of influence. God has placed them in your life and, and given you the responsibility through the local church of reaching out to them. And He has made witnessing personal. He has made it a passionate thing and a proactive thing. In Proverbs 14.25, the Bible tells us a true witness delivereth souls. A true witness delivereth souls. Proverbs also says, he that winneth souls is wise. Proverbs 11.30. Personal, passionate, proactive. It never becomes the responsibility of, of just other people, you know, generically within the church. It's a personal thing. If we're a part of this church, it's a personal thing. You know, great men of the past who were reaching whole countries and whole generations were still personal soul winners. Hudson Taylor 
was still a personal soul winner. Adonira Judson was still a personal soul winner. D.L. Moody went out witnessing to everybody every day. And Charles Spurgeon, though he had a huge ministry there in London back in the latter 1800s, still was a personal soul winner. And then, of course, our greatest example of the Lord Jesus Christ was a personal soul winner. It was a personal thing with him. And there are, there are countless examples of him witnessing or teaching how to witness. <clears throat> and five times the Bible tells us he was moved with compassion. When he saw the lost, it moved him. He cared about that. And it compelled him. And he was continually teaching truths and, and parables and parallels and principles about being a personal witness. In Luke 15 alone, he gives us three examples of how important one soul is, the value of one. He, he talks about a, a woman who lost a piece of silver and swept her whole house until she found it. That was an illustration of reaching out to one person. He, he talks about the, uh, the good Samaritan. He talks about the lost sheep. He talks about that prodigal son. He's giving us examples here of those who are in need of, an, of a witness, us. And he tells us that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he came. That was his passion. Uh, Matthew 9 tells us he was moved with compassion. His, his passion was not world peace. In fact, he told us that he came not to bring peace, but a sword, even division with a, within a household. And so he wasn't here to bring peace. He wasn't here to overhaul the social system. He wasn't here to overthrow Roman oppression. He wasn't here to empty out hospitals by healing people and, and breaking up every funeral by raising the person from the dead. He did some of that. But that's, why, that's not why he was here. He, he didn't come to do a bunch of miracles. He didn't come to build a monument. He didn't come to build a huge following. He said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Can you imagine if Christ walked the earth today with the, uh, the network that we have, the information age we live in? I mean, how every night on the nightly news he'd be talking about what he did that day. And all these blogs about him and, and Facebook and Twitter and, and uh, hits and all this stuff. I mean, it would light up the internet all about the Lord Jesus Christ. When are you going to write your, your, your best-selling book? Uh, what's your ministry strategy? And they would, they would put that microphone under him continually trying to get, you know, what you're going to do next kind of thing out of him. But he basically came to lay low, train his disciples and seek to win whoever he could along the way. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You know, today's televangelists, they don't talk much about being born again. They talk about a better life. They, 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 they talk about, you know, uh, little clever subjects that will uh, bring in the listeners and so on. And they have the praise band. They have all the, the trimmings and so on. But you never hear about being born again. It was the passion of Christ. He talked about it continually. His entire ministry was about it. And when he was gone, that compassion, that passion was not gone. It continued on. He passed on the baton, uh, known as the Great Commission, and his disciples carried it on. Jesus Christ still today cares about souls, still has that passion for the lost. The Bible tells us there's joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. I believe that joy primarily comes from the Son of God who has the wounds to prove he loved those lost and died for them. So imagine what it means to him when somebody takes advantage of the shed blood. There are many 
that have carried on that passion. I was in Africa a, a couple of years ago, and we traveled from Botswana up into uh, Zambia and even over into Zimbabwe, and, and there you find Victoria Falls, and there at, at Vic Falls you find a statue of David Livingston. And David Livingston was the one who got so engrossed in what he was doing in Africa, they lost touch with him for six years. Finally, they sent Henry Stanley after him, and you've heard the famous uh, motto or the cliché, Dr. Livingston, I presume. The only two white guys in all of Africa, practically, because David Livingston had it within his heart to pave the way into the interior so that the gospel could get there. Slave traders followed him. And, of course, you know what followed there. But Livingston was greatly grieved over the fact that no missionaries or few missionaries would actually follow him in. And he wrote a letter to his father and he said, Cannot the love of Christ carry the missionary where the greed of the slave trader would go? What a sad thing that the compassion was lacking. And Livingston died at age 60 with a broken heart in Zambia. How sad. He was sick, really sick the last six years of his life. He had passion, but do I have passion? Or do you have passion? Do we have the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is our greatest desire? Is your greatest desire to get a degree? Or your greatest desire to get a promotion? Or your greatest desire to uh, build a business? I mean, really, what is it that we are seeking? And do we need to realign our priorities? Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Look, if you would, in John chapter 4. We find what some here might call a, quote, chance meeting between Jesus Christ and a Samaritan woman that took place one afternoon. But it wasn't a chance. It was divinely ordained of God. And the disciples had gone into town to buy food and while they were gone, Jesus Christ finds somebody to witness to. Remember, he was a personal soul winner. Here in John chapter 4, we pick it up in verse number 5. It says, Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. By the way, they say that's one of the most authentic things still over in the Holy Land. That well is still there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the six hours, about noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Now, this conversation ensues, and it's, it's a whole sermon within itself, but Christ brings the subject around to salvation, as you would expect him to do. This woman at first didn't get it, but... Finally, she realized she was a sinner, she was lost, she needed a Savior. This is the Messiah, no less. Can you imagine that? And she's gloriously born again. Well, we pick it up in verse number 27. It says, And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, See a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, 
Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit into life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. By the way, Christ did some sowing here. Philip, in Acts chapter 8, years later, would actually come and do some more reaping. Christ saw down the road when that would happen. But notice he mentions here these white fields in verse number 35. Look unto the fields, for they are white already to harvest. We live in a world that is ripe right now. My wife watched the uh, early, early morning news here a few days ago and, and afterwards said, do you know how much rotten stuff is going on right now? Are you following the news? It's awful. It's really awful. The fields are white under the harvest. We are living in the last days. No question about that. What should our reaction be to that? Now, it's that time of the year. It's getting to be that time of the year where, especially in this area, we understand what the harvest is all about around here. We know that there are farmers who need to get into the fields at this point. There are beans to get out of the field. There are potatoes to get out of the field. There are sugar beets to get out of the field. I live out in the country. I, I, I drive by acres of land on my way home. I, my driveway drives between acres of, of farmland. And many a time in the fall, I have looked out the window at night and, and, and seen the headlights out there, which are still around when I get up the next morning and it's still dark out. Those tractors, those beet trucks, those farmers have been out in those fields all night. You say, well, what are they doing? Well, they're harvesting the crop. You know, crops go through three phases. They go from being green to being ripe to rotting. And there is a certain time when we need to harvest them. It's called harvest time. It is brief. It is precious. People are valuable when it comes to the salvation of a soul. And our time is short. Jesus Christ in John chapter 4 here is trying to teach His disciples something. He's trying to instill something in the apostles here, and they didn't get it. They didn't get it. They, they said, what are you talking to this gal for? You know, they didn't know her soul was worth more in the whole world. They should have. Christ had, had said that. And then afterwards, they say, Lord, eat something. He said, I, I have meat to eat, you know, not up. In other words, this is what is consuming me. And they didn't get that either. They, they, uh, they weren't focused. They didn't see the fields that were white in the harvest. Christ tells them, look, it's harvest time. 1 Corinthians 15, 34 says, Awake to righteousness, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You know, I, I got to wonder if Christ didn't want to say that to them. Awake to righteousness, guys. Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. You are missing the point. Folks, some have not the knowledge of God in this community. We know that. In fact, most people. Now, a farmer will reorder his priorities at harvest time, won't he? I mean, there are other things that need to be done, but they're just going to have to wait. It doesn't matter if it's cold out, he's out there harvesting. It doesn't matter if it's dark out, it doesn't matter if it's raining out even. I've seen those guys out there harvesting because it's crunch time. A farmer will reorder his priorities when it's harvest time. 
And sometimes it's not convenient to, to, to reach that harvest. John R. Rice said this yesterday. The greatest witnesses are not those who witness when it's convenient. I read this yesterday. He said, they are those who witness when it's not convenient. Folks, it's really never going to be convenient to witness. I mean, the devil's going to see to it there are other things that clamor for our time. It's never going to be convenient. In fact, the word convenient really ought to be cut out of our dictionary as Christian people. It's really a very pitiful word when you think about it. Have we forgotten what's important? It's harvest time. Proverbs 10.5 says, He that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. Are we sleeping in harvest? He that sleepeth in harvest is a son that causeth shame. Are we loiterers or are we laborers when it comes to the work of reaching people? Is evangelism a priority like it was with the Lord Jesus Christ? You're in John here. Turn to John chapter 9 if you would. You say, but I've got so many things to do. Most people really do. Most of us have a full list, don't we? A lot of stuff on our list. Boy, I know I've got a lot of stuff on my list. But you know, there's always time to stop and witness. In John chapter 9, and in verse number 4, Christ says, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. The night is coming when there will be no more opportunities to witness anymore. If we're waiting for a round to it, I've seen a round to it. You ever seen one of those? The words to it on this round thing. You know, we'll never get around to it. When it comes to witnessing, if we're waiting till we can get around to it, it'll just never happen. We're going to have to purposely make time for it. We're going to have to purposely pray for opportunities. God help us to take it seriously. You know, there are things in life that are needs. There are things that are non-essentials. Jesus said, I must needs be about my Father's business. I think we need to bump some non-essentials down the list and, and, and just kind of reprioritize things. Number one, we need to become soul conscious. Soul conscious. Secondly, we need to develop relationships with people with that in mind. I mean that this might be an opportunity to witness to them. And then thirdly, we need to prepare to act. You know, we can find time and ways to do things we really want to do. I had a preacher friend tell me recently, he said he has learned over the years that Americans make time to do the things they really want to do. Isn't that the truth? Somebody says, well, I just couldn't make it to church. Well, we make time for things we really want to do, whether it's three hours, going to a ball game, or whatever it might do. Uh, we make time for the things that really matter. I heard a story about a preacher and his wife who have this uncanny knack for memorizing names and, and church folks and visitors and so on. And somebody asked a question, how do you do that? Like it's, you know, some magical formula. And they both said, well, we talk about it on the way home from church. We talk about over breakfast. Who's that one guy with the mustache, the glasses, and so on and so forth? And then the preacher said this. He said, we really find a way to do the things that matter. And isn't that the truth? We find a way to do the things that really matter. If it comes to witnessing, if it really mattered we would learn those verses. We would map out that Bible. We would hide the Word of God in our heart to where we have the plan of salvation there. We would think of ways to open conversations and be able to witness to people. We are 
ambassadors for Christ. Think about this. We have ambassadors in this country to uh, nearly a couple hundred other countries. And they represent us here. They go to those countries. They give speeches. They meet with diplomats. Do you think they prepare for that? I do. Uh, look, if you would, in Second Corinthians chapter 5. I think an ambassador who carries a message to a foreign land prepares beforehand, before going to that place. You say, well, what's your point? Well, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, notice verse number 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, or beg you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Be ye reconciled to God. That is our message. As ambassadors, we go to folks saying, be reconciled to God. And we prepare beforehand to be able to tell them how to. We look for every possible way to lodge that message in the heart of the listener like an ambassador does. By preparing beforehand. Look in Acts chapter 8 if you would. Let me show you a classic example. And you know the story of the Ethiopian here in Acts chapter 8. But we find here a classic example of a preacher by the name of, of Philip who prepared beforehand to reach out to somebody. An African man, no less, in this case. And in verse number uh, 30, we find that Philip ran thither to him, the Ethiopian, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he, the Ethiopian, said, How can I? except some man should guide me. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shears, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And those of you who are students of the Bible know that that comes from Isaiah 53. So the man is reading a prophecy all about Christ, written 700 years beforehand, and he's going, what is this talking about? What does this mean? Notice in verse number uh, 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same Scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Notice, first of all, the Holy Spirit had been preparing the heart of this African man. Notice, secondly, that Philip knew what to do with the text that the Holy Spirit had given this Ethiopian. Why? Well, he'd been in his Bible. He understood that passage. He understood what he's talking about. Verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth, began at the same Scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. So, in other words, he gives him the plan of salvation. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip had not only told him how to be saved, but what follows that scriptural baptism. Philip said in verse 37, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There it is. Salvation. He is born again. The Spirit of God had been preparing his heart, and he's ripe. And by the way, there are folks like this out there. I think it was the week before last. It was kind of uncanny. I didn't go to them, but within probably a two-day period, 
It's like God brought three people across my path, and every single one of them was open. Every single one of them was, was, and I'm talking about, you know, truck drivers and whatever else they might be, but people in all walks of life are, are uh, open. Not everybody, but many. And God will bring them across our path, and he will prepare their hearts. And the Ethiopian here asks some great questions, no question about that. You know, it's amazing to me when you do witness to folks, some of the things they ask. It's so heartwarming. It's so refreshing. It's amazing. And, and it really provides quite often for a, a lead-in. And the Holy Spirit can lead us at that time and, and take those questions. And, and we can say in so many words, has anyone ever shown you from the Bible how you can know for sure you're going to heaven? And of course, no one ever has for the most part. And so here they are, and yeah, they would like to go to heaven. They'd like to know for sure they're going to heaven. Now, there are some people who might just stiff arm you at that point. But if you ask somebody, are you sure you're going to heaven? That's a good lead-in. Look at Romans chapter 3, if you would. So what do you do at that point? Well, I guess in however you word it, however you get around to it, you explain to them that the first thing we must do is recognize our condition. The condition that we are in. Now, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There are very few people who wouldn't admit that describes them. All have sinned. They're sinners. And at that point, you can take them through the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, very good thing to memorize. They are very convicting. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, we find according to Galatians. So at that point, you show them all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Let me, let me illustrate that. And then you take them through the Ten Commandments. And then you show them the last part of that verse. Come short of the glory of God. There they are realizing they are a sinner. And as a result, they've come short of the glory of God. Then you take them to Romans 6. Let's turn a few pages there. There are really two things in this brief verse to show them. And I always stop halfway into it. Romans 6.23, the first part, says, For the wages of sin is death. Now you've established with them already, they're sinners. Now here's the penalty for sin. They understand wages. You can explain what they are. And the wages of sin is death. And not only physical, but spiritual. And dying in that condition, it's separation from God forever. In what the Bible describes as the lake of fire. The second half of the verse gives them the good news. Because they're feeling pretty low by that point. Okay, The second half says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There you see a sign of hope. Oh, okay, I am a wretch, and the wage of sin is hell, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you take them to Romans 5 by turning back a page, and in Romans 5, verse number 8, says, God commendeth, you point out that word means proved, but God commendeth or proved his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. I have in my Bible an arrow from the last part of verse 8 to the last part of verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. They know at this point, or at least should, that they qualify as the ungodly. You take somebody through the commandments, (laughs) I'm telling you, it's very, very convicting. So they know they're the ungodly, but God has proved His love for us by dying for us. 
Christ dying for, for us. And you can quote John 3.16 there, for God so loved the world and so on, and to get them to see that. Now, back a page forward again in Romans 6, you can point out a word in verse number 23. It's the word gift. The word gift. Most people, especially in this area, are trying to work their way to heaven. And you can even quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9 at that point. It's, it's not of works. It's the gift of God. And, and illustrate to them that a gift needs to be received. And it's not a gift until it is received. And then you can talk about God's catalyst, if you will, to receive the gift. A catalyst or a, a, a catalyst kind of reaction is when you put two things together. And the, the two things that need to come together for salvation are repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. And you take them to verses, or a lot of verses. In fact, just look back in, in Acts chapter 20, because it mentions those two things together. And you can take them there and say, okay, we need to talk about these two things, repentance and faith. Acts 20, you find Paul in verse 21, saying how he testified both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. I often call them the Siamese twins of salvation. Repentance and faith. There are a number of verses that you can go to that deal with repentance. They're found in our seven steps to God Bible study. And repentance simply is a change of mind, a change of attitude about our sin. And by the way, when you explain repentance and you've taken them through the law and sin, I think it's a good place to stop and evaluate Okay, is this guy interested or is this gal, uh, you know, receptive? Are, are they just kind of listening and not really getting into it or apathetic toward it? Or are they really with me at this point? Because if you notice they're just kind of humoring you, you might want at that point, you know, maybe just come back later, try and explain more, pray for them for a while more. We, we live in the 21st century, obviously, you know that. And in the 21st century, people are growing up with so much baggage and so much bondage and so many layers that, that almost need to be unpeeled like those on an onion that to try and go for the juggler, so to speak, is not wise. That's why we have the seven steps to God. It takes them through in increments to where a little bit more light and a little bit more light and a little bit more light keep coming on and until finally they, oh, okay, I get it now. And so if, if they're not ready... Be patient. You, you can't pick right, or, or, or green fruit. You've got to wait for it to ripen. And so maybe put them on your prospect list at that point and, and, and pray for them. Pray over that list. Continue to cultivate a relationship with them as a prospect. But you're, you've done your part if you've witnessed. You know, Paul put it this way. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You don't have to pull the trigger the first time. Some people do get saved the first time, but, but not really most of the time. And so just be faithful at planting that seed, sowing that seed. Maybe somebody will come along later, else, later on and, and, and water it, but just do your part. Now, you say, where do I begin? Well, man, there's people all over the place. This community needs to be saturated with personal soul winners. Start with people you work with and start with uh, maybe your neighbors and start with, with anyone who has a need. By the way, everybody has a need. Everybody has a burden. You know, we wear a hard shell and, 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 and uh, an exterior 
to where we say everything's fine, everything's okay. But I'm telling you, where you work, there are people hurting. Where you live, there are people hurting. Everybody's having it rough. There are people everywhere that are hurting. We have a compassion ministry here. And uh, we're just reaching out to people because people have burdens. And we're just trying to make contacts. And, and through them, it enables us to share the gospel, maybe with them or, or, or as many as possible. But I'm telling you, there are folks in nursing homes. There are people on college campuses. There are people in rescue missions that would be willing to do a Bible study with somebody if we really just cared enough to reach out to them. You know, we, we have a bus ministry here. That's just our way of, of not only reaching children, but making contacts and making a difference. Jude talks about making a difference. James talks about pure religion. Pure religion. I guess as we close today, I just want to encourage you uh, to either stay after the service and pray that God would give you a burden or go home and pray that, that God would show you what your part is. But, but really what, what I'm begging for is for some people to either enlist or to re-enlist. To re-enlist. I remember when 9-11 took place. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget coming to the church here. We were pouring the parking lot right over in that area back then uh, or doing some work over, and I think it was pouring the parking lot. And I got to talking to uh, some of our workers over there, and one of the guys said, you know, the boys and I are talking about enlisting, enlisting. There's something about a need that causes us to see, wow, I need to get involved. You know, when the greatest enlistment ever took place in the history of the U.S. military, December 8, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor, the, the three branches of the military were flooded with recruits, from teenagers to World War I veterans who wanted to put the uniform back on and get involved. I think it was Yama, uh, Yamamoto the Japanese admiral, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, said, I don't think we really accomplished anything. In fact, I, I fear we have awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with an awful resolve. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, men were enlisting like crazy. Folks, there's a greater need at this hour. And it's, it's the salvation of souls. I close with this verse. I quote 1 Thessalonians 2.4 which says, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. As we were allowed of God, all talking to a local church, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. God help us to speak. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Puppet Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.